Hello, welcome to LAMP, the Life and Math podcast, where I shine a light on mathematicians and the work they do, as well as on pathways to success and happiness in life. Please visit lifeandmath.com to find about all that's happening at Life and Math. Enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to the Life and Math podcast. This is the second half of our interview with Dr. Sean Ryan, an applied mathematician from Cleveland State University. Dr. Ryan, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Kyle. All right, we're excited. Now we're gonna, we learned a bunch about your life path. People feel like they have some handle on, on the trajectory of, of your life. Now let's get into your math. So um, we like to start in the first half with big picture. So as an applied mathematician, try to give us some sense of how you organize the math you do. What, what sort of field or fields do you work in or perhaps what tools do you like to use? Give us, how do we, how do we classify the type of math you do? Yeah, so it's interesting because it's currently an ongoing debate. I do mathematical biology. So how I describe that is basically I use differential equations to model living systems. So I'm focused on the big picture of self-organization, which means how do organisms form patterns and that we observe in nature? Or how do organisms work together without explicit communication to accomplish a task like avoiding a predator or finding food or you know, finding, migrating to a new location. So the controversy is, what is mathematical biology? Is it biostatistics? Is it epidemiology? Is it disease dynamics? Is it math modeling? Is it biology? I mean, all these are often called mathematical biology. And if you ask someone who says they do mathematical biology, they'll tell you something different. But for me, it's applying mathematical modeling to biological systems. And there's a, a large conference from the Society of Mathematical Biology every summer that brings together people from all the fields I mentioned, biostatistics, biologists, you know, modelers, and they let us meet, we hear talks and we come, you know, we build our bridge to a common definition of mathematical biology. And I heard a great quote that was the, uh, the 19th century, or sorry, the 20th century, the 1900s, was the, the century for math and physics. The 21st century is supposedly the century for math and biology. Mm. So there are sorry. there were a lot of, sorry, yes? Sorry, chemistry, you're left out. No century. Oh, yeah, well, maybe 22nd century. We'll get to you. <laughs> chemistry is hard. No, no so uh, basically, you know, the challenge now as a mathematician is biologists are working on incredibly great problems, very interesting problems, how organisms work, how proteins fold, how DNA is structured. And we want to convince them that the mathematical tools we have can help in their analysis. So uh, oftentimes it's hard to convince a biologist who's working in the field a long time that they should invest time talking to you about these analytical methods. So oftentimes it takes convincing. You have to show them the power of math and what it can do and how it can aid in their research. We're not trying to replace experiments. That's not the goal. But one sort of big idea I've been focused on is math models with simulation can replace unnecessary experiments. Like you've observed something, you've reproduced it once. There's no need to do it a thousand more times if you can build a model that lets you test various parameters on the computer. That, that comes up a lot in uh, industry and things like material science where they have uh, sort of designed experiments where they can sample a huge swath of parameter space, space virtually. So different combinations of how you do the process and materials and eliminate big chunks of it so that then you can zoom in and focus your experimental work, which you have limits on, you know, in terms of cost or time, whatever it may be. And you can just run a small number of experiments on those 
parts of uh, the parameter space that, that looked most interesting. Um, so that's a way that they can work uh, together symbiotically as opposed to uh, in opposition to each other. Yeah, and it's, it's something we touched on in the first half is that with this modeling I did at Argonne was on bacterial suspensions. And oftentimes the trick with growing bacteria is that they're all different. They're different shapes, different sizes, different mechanisms for bundling their flagella. And the model says, forget all that. Let's just test one parameter at a time. We'll make all the bacterium uniform ellipsoids, we'll make them all the same size, and we'll test you know, the propulsion speed and see what that effect is. And that can be hard to disentangle in the experiment when you can't control how bacteria grow. You can't control life oftentimes. So that, that's like one interesting addition, I want to say math can provide, not replacement, but added benefit. Yeah, it's simpler. Well, that, that, yeah, that, so, so that's what math does. It tries to take real life and it simplifies it without losing essential features. So certain simplifications you might not practically really be able to do life, but, but the math might let you understand the impact of one variable, because in the biology, there's always a hundred or something like that, and you can't quite isolate them. Yeah, and I don't know if you've heard this famous quote on modeling, and I think it was Einstein, but don't quote me. He said, uh, we want to make the mathematical model as simple as possible, but not simpler. Yep, yep. And that's like the key idea with modeling, right? You want it to be as easy to explain to someone else as possible, but if you lose an essential feature, it's not going to be useless at all, and it's going to be useless and not useful at all. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, so you're a modeler, that, that's what, what comes out of that. Now, and you touched on differential equations. How much are you focused on the analytic aspects? How much are you focused on the simulations? Like when you create a model with differential equations, are the types of models you come up with, is the challenge often picking the right model? Is the challenge that the models are often so complex, they're really hard to simulate? What, what there's a, you know, modeling's a massive world. Take us inside that for you and how you are doing your model. So actually, you know, when people ask me what is applied math, and some people may disagree, but I say there's three key principles of applied math. There's modeling, there's simulation, and there's analysis. And all three have to work hand in hand. So I can put any model I want down, but if I can't analyze it or simulate it, it's not going to be very useful. Or I can do a simulation, but if it's so complicated, no one can understand what's actually happening. Is it actually useful? I don't know. So what we focus on, you know, I often have interdisciplinary collaborations with analysts. So my background is more on the modeling. I love to put models down. And this actually comes from a talk I saw as a PhD student. So Felix Otto, a famous applied mathematician from Germany who works at Max Planck, he came to give what's called the marker lectures at Penn State, which is like the named lecture series. And someone comes and gives four lectures throughout the week, one every day, Monday through Thursday. And he starts out the first talk. This is like, top two talks I've ever seen in my life. He says, okay, I'm modeling this PD. It has diffusion. It has evaporation. It has production terms. And he took each term separately and said this and drew a graph of what each term does separately. Like, this is what diffusion will do if I just have it by itself. This is what evaporation will do if that's the only term. This is what production does. And then he combined them all and showed, and you could easily see how all three parts contributed to the final solution. And that's what I think about. I tried to present talks and research and models like, let's try to model one aspect of what we're looking at. Can we get that right first before we do anything else? Can I, I always emphasize, I teach this intro to modeling course, Math 401 at CSU. And the first day I tell you, the most important question is, do you have something to verify your model? Do you have a case study, a, a toy example that you can verify the model? Because if you can't verify it, how can anyone trust your predictions? 
And, you know, there's a lot of things we can't verify in these fields, but you have to have a toy problem that at least it works for that. So people have some trust in the model. That, that idea that idea goes actually even in, in pure math. So there's plenty of times with a conjecture or you're trying to prove a theorem where you don't work on the hardest object first, you work on the simplest toy example, um, and then you go from there. Um, and you make sure you can at least do it for that and, and work on from that. Okay, so in your, in your work then, you said you, know, you often like to work in collaboration with analysts and as an analyst myself, so I, I understand the analysis half, but as the modeler then is your, in, in, in that collaboration, is it often, is your skill actually picking the right model, picking which terms that, that actually go into it and then being able to talk with the analyst to understand if I make the term this way, it's intractable versus this way, it's tractable but trivial. Like what's the skill for the modeler in this part of it or what's the work? So if you think about, you know, applied math, math, mathematics is that triangle I mentioned with the three sides, I fall in the modeling numerical. So I'll often put down a model and I'll try to get preliminary analysis through simulation. Like, what are we observing? What can we see? And then, you know, it's important to work with analysts because sometimes something to simulate that's easy is impossible to analyze. And my background is mostly working with physicists and uh, computational researchers from the life side of our podcast. So I'm naturally on the side of simulation. So I tend to work with people whose background are on like OD and PD theory about existence uniqueness, because I'm also interested in saying we have this model, it has a few parameters, it works well, and it can be analyzed. That's usually the benefit we're adding. We create a simple model that you can do some nice analysis on about, will this work all time? Will this uh, collapse about two minutes into your experiment? We wanna make those predictions using the analysis. But in terms of coming up with the model, as you mentioned, it's not like, it's not a shotgun approach where we just throw anything. But I think it's more building up from, let's start with just diffusion. Okay, we have diffusion, the particles diffuse, the bacteria diffuse. Okay, next, what do we want to model? Well, they secrete chemical. What term would model chemical secretion? Let's try that. Okay, this is too much or this is too little. Let's go back and adjust that term and sort of add pieces in like that instead of let's throw 10 terms on the right-hand side and just see what happens. Right, yeah, yeah, no, you build it up and that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so is it is that a really challenging or skill intensive thing. You know, I, I think a lot about how much tasks require, uh, how much could a robot do it versus it requires skill. Like, you know, does that draw a lot on your experience to know, okay, as I'm adding on this term for the diffusion, this way is probably the way to get it. And these are roughly the parameter values we should explore. Or is that usually pretty easy? Like how, how hard is that to, to do that process? So it, it's actually quite challenging because you can imagine back to the example of the bacterial suspension. We're simulating a suspension of a million bacteria. That's not a 10-minute simulation. That's, you know, a day-long simulation. When I was at Argonne, it was a day-long simulation. And you have a typo, you wasted a day. You know, I'm not trying to say it as like a pressure thing, but it like a you have to be certain about what you're doing. That's the challenge. Like, you can try things, but don't waste time trying something that's clearly not going to work. Like, that would just waste a day. So typically, we try things at the small scale, like 100 cells that's going to run in 10 minutes and we we demo that but often what i found interesting about this field is as you increase the population size some things change you know they behave differently the patterns change and that's the interesting part like is there a threshold value where your small scale model is no longer valid on the large scale mm -hmm. and that's sort of where the interesting observations come out because in the real experiment they have millions 
So if you want to be close to the experiment, you're going to have to scale up your model. And that is the challenging part. The other challenging thing is the number one, if you ask probably any mathematical biologist, the number one challenge is parameter estimation. Mm -hmm. So people put out models with 50 parameters. Is that really usable if I'm estimating 50 parameters? No. I mean, but okay, a model with two or three, that's reasonable. 50, it's hard to even take those from the literature because so many things are interacting. How can you isolate one parameter and say, this is the value it has to be? So a lot of uh, the field is going towards what are the best ways to sample parameter space to find the optimal parameters? So there's sensitivity analysis. There's these Latin hypercube sampling, which is a way to sample parameter values. And I can tell you almost every paper I've gotten a revision on has said, you need to explain better how you sampled your parameters and how you came up with these values. Because people want to understand, is this realistic or just pick to make the analysis easy? That's the number one question. Because there are papers that are valuable that just make analysis easy by what you pick. Yep, yep. So I, 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 prior to my life as a mathematician, I worked in biomedical engineering and I worked in uh, MRI brain imaging. And so one of the things that was a constant danger was there was software where you could take a MRI brain scan and you could make a really cool looking picture, like really cool looking picture, but it might be total garbage. Like how, like you, you just picked parameters, you set things a certain way because the, the image is, is samples different properties in the brain certain ways. And then you're, you're basically creating a model for sort of how to walk through the, the data you got, but you could do that however you like. And so a pretty picture is not good enough just to say you actually have something real. How yeah. can you show that what you've done is somehow anchored in reality and isn't just trying to impress us with a lot of colors and a, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the first thing when you walk into an experimental lab, the first thing they say to you is, okay, you made a prediction. Why should I believe it? Mm, yeah. So, so that, that's as, as a pure mathematician, this is part of my attraction to staying more in pure math, though I, I think it would be good to interact with, with applications a little more, is I like that certainty. I like not having to worry about that half. I, I know I'm done with my task because I've actually proved it. Um, but it might not be useful to anyone. <laughs> yeah, so one interesting thing where we're coming close together is there's a brand new field in mathematical biology. I, maybe you're familiar. It's called topological data analysis. A little bit. There was a guy at Cleveland State, I think, who actually now is at Florida, who is a big name in that. If oh, I yeah, remember. Peter Bubinek. Yeah. yeah, huge guy, like one of the leaders in the field. Yeah, so we're bringing pure mathematicians into our biology fold because you can use topology and algebra to analyze data even more efficiently than past methods. So people like I study pattern formation and like sizes of collective structures and they have ways to extract that using topology. So I'm learning that actually, you know, being a professor is an ongoing learning experience. So I'm trying to stay up with the field and learn those techniques from algebra and topology to analyze my own data. Well, that's fascinating. That's, those are probably ideas that, that you didn't really ever systematically encounter, at least in terms of applied math PhDs that I'm familiar with. You know, you're not exactly taking many abstract algebra or you know, you know a little bit of topology because you need to know continuity and things, but more abstract topology, uh, things like uh, topology, which I'm guessing is some of what they're using. Um, I'm doubting that crossed your studies earlier. So one fun fact is when I was taking the qualifiers, you have a choice. You could take numerical linear algebra, like numerical methods, or abstract algebra. And given my background, what would you think I took? I would think the numerical. No, I took the abstract algebra. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just uh, the way, like, 
actually, this is interesting because I'm not a pure mathematician, but I found that the rules of abstract algebra were more clear cut. Like well, I not. knew what to expect. Yeah, I knew what to expect. And I, so I said, I'm going to take that qualifier, even though it's not my field, because I have a better chance of passing that, even though my whole research is based on numerics. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that, though. That's, that's part of what attracts people. One of the purposes of life in math is to expose students to some things a lot earlier. And one of those topics is absolutely topology and abstract algebra, um, to, because they're, they're very different. And they can be a lot of fun, and students often don't encounter that type of thinking. Um, I really like algebra, at least at the first level or two, because of that simplicity. Uh, no, me, but I, in modeling, like, uh, they'll say, like, why do I have to take abstract algebra? I'm an applied mathematician modeling. And I'm like, no, this teaches you pattern recognition, which is essential to modeling. Like, what, what is the patterns you're observing? What are the forms, functional forms? And that clearly relates to how you build the model. I think it's actually critically important to understand the baseline structure in that field. Well, and, and how to uh, simplify things. I mean, algebra is about what makes algebra hard in many ways is that it's so simple. Like it's almost too simple sometimes, not that it's easy per se, but when people encounter trouble, it's because there are only a few rules. And so you just have to think logically, really rigorously with just a few baseline starting axes rules. Um, and that can be a trouble. People are used to a lot more complexity in things. Um, so jump us just a little bit to the computational end though. So you said you, you'll run simulations and I think it's interesting and, and people want to get some sense of What's it like to run simulate? We talked with Wanda Strahalski, where yep. she's got to code everything. She's doing really detailed models with, um, she's writing C++ code. Is that the level of which your simulations are? Or, uh, plug and play tools? How, how do you do your simulations? Yeah, so Wanda's actually a great friend of mine. I highly recommend listening to her podcast as well, because she has, you know, even a different journey than my own, but we're still both doing, you know, mathematical biology and, and numerical computations. So we talked sort of in the life half about how important mentors are, right? My mentor at Argonne, he programmed in Fortran. So I still program in Fortran because he taught me while I was there. I might be the only person under 40 years old that programs in Fortran. No way. But, there are people who do high-end stuff. That's, that's still the fastest for a lot of things. Yeah. So, I mean, MATLAB is nice and Python is nice, but Fortran is so basic that it's fast. That's why I use it. You can imagine simulating a million bacteria and Fortran is going to be the fastest. So it, you don't have object-oriented programming like C++, but here you have basically rules for each of your, your cells, you know? How does this one move based on all its neighbors? So I can just loop over everyone else and do computations. And what actually became popular when I was at Argonne is the GPU programming. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine with the bacterial suspension, if I could separate and do all these calculations in parallel, it would be much faster. And Fortran and C++ were the only languages at the time compatible with the GPU. So actually, actually C++ plus plus for a second, in case people aren't familiar at all. So with GPUs, when, when you want to do computing, and I'm speaking, I'm, I'm a pure person, but I know a little bit of applied. So um, when you want to do computations, what helps to make things fast almost always is doing things in parallel. So if you've got some picture, a big grid, like a, just for simplicity, let's say it's a thousand by thousand grid. Well, stuff happening in the top left corner is often independent or mostly independent of stuff happening in, say, the lower right corner. And so if you can run the part of your simulation for the top left and the top right and the bottom left and the bottom right separately, and then sort of aggregate and keep, keep running them bit by bit independently, that's how you speed things up. And so GPUs are a common way of doing this really quickly. They, they're graphical processing units and they're made to do things like play high-end video games and such because they, those, those applications demand 
being able to do a bunch of computations to play the disks or whatever it may be really quickly. And the different parts of the screen are independent of each other. So it's a, it's a common tool to try and make uh, calculations go really fast as if you can use GPUs for it. They're quicker than CPUs. So there's actually a great analogy that I used in my research talk when I was hired at CSU, which is a CPU is like a Corvette, right? It does one or two operations very fast. I can go very fast, do those two things. A GPU is like a school bus. I can load it up and do 30 things at once, but it's going to go a little slower than the Corvette. So there's the slowdown is the passing the memory to the graphics card and doing the computations and passing it back. But you can do a ton more. Now, this is the mathematical part, though. The mathematical part is a GPU, while you're doing those computations in parallel, as Kyle said, they cannot be relying on information from the neighbors because they're, they're doing them independently. So if, to go to numerics, if you take a numerical analysis course, the explicit methods work on GPUs because they're based on previous data, the previous position, the previous velocity. Implicit methods cannot be done on GPUs because those are based on current data. Where my neighbor is now. Well, I don't know that because he's on a different GPU. So I don't know where he is. I know where he was last time though. And that's why explicit methods work with the GPUs and are faster. And we just one numerical principle is implicit methods tend to be more stable than mm -hmm. explicit methods. So that's the, when you use a GPU, you have to consider, you will get a speed up, but you have to make sure your method is stable because you're using an explicit form. Hmm. So when you're doing those simulations, is it, is it that, okay, one time point of the simulation is finished, so then everything gets sent out to its different GPUs, they do the calculation, does it then all re-aggregate to give the, the settled next time point, and then you repeat the process? Is that sort of the flow of information? Yeah, so that was the old way to do it when I started, like okay. 10 what years ago. The new, more sophisticated GPUs that NVIDIA makes, these Titan GPUs, they allow you to store multiple time periods of information on the GPU. So you're only transferring the information back once every so often. And that really speeds up the computation. So like you said, the top left and the bottom right, they're not gonna get near each other, say swimming bacteria for a long period of time. So you can store, you know, 10, 100 time steps <laughs> on the GPU without mimicking, it, without mapping it back. And that actually speeds up the computation 10, 100 times because Doing all the computations in parallel is instantaneous. It's the mapping back that takes time. Yeah, so this is our first time actually talking about this in an interview. So it, it helps to maybe uh, take a half step back because I haven't, I haven't said this. So when you're, doing, when you're doing applied work like this, the question is you've got different components uh, or types of components doing your calculations. And there are different speeds associated usually with either the actual making of the calculation or of the passing the information back and forth. So that's what's being highlighted here. The, the passing information to GPUs is slow, but the processing in GPUs is really fast. And the idea is we've got this huge calculation. So we want to do as much as the, the game, the art of it, is how can we speed this up and, and minimize the stuff that's causing trouble, that causes slowdowns, and maximize the things that are really quick. And so the, the example that, that Dr. Ryan just gave is, OK, now because the top left and the lower right aren't going to interact very much, let's just do a whole bunch of time steps at once so we don't pass a lot. And, and that's how you, so are you actually having on a uh, sort of model by model basis, decide the details of how the algorithm is structured? Or is that a bit more mm, out of the box? And you can, you know, how much do you have to tailor all those details? I mean, you're writing Fortran, so I guess you got to tailor it every time you get a simulation. <laughs> 
Well, so, so I, I want to emphasize this recurring theme of the modeling, the challenge you keep mentioning in modeling is actually it's more art than science sometimes, like how to build the model, how, like what algorithm are you going to use? Now there's a science behind it because different algorithms converge at different speeds, but what we like to emphasize in numerics is you can get a more accurate method, but it's going to take longer to run. So what can you live with? Like if I increase accuracy by one digit, but it takes 10 years to run, it's not, I can't live with that. That's so that's art. often what we're struggling with. Yeah, that that's that the, the art, something is an art to some degree when there's not an absolute right or wrong, but it's how well it, it's understanding in a trade-off what trade-offs are best to make in this situation. That that's sort of the judgment that makes it an art. Um, oh, that's beautiful. I really like that. Yeah, so I mean, and that's for almost every numerical algorithm, right? I can redo all the papers I've ever written with a more detailed method, but it I'd probably still be writing those papers. <laughs> so yeah, that's, especially that's, for debugging. That That's an important meta idea for life. That, that's a really, really important meta idea for life, which is you got to find the right trade-off. You, know, you, you can try to do one thing absolutely perfectly, but you're never going to make any progress in your life in whatever area you may be talking about. Um, but if you just do things really quickly, they might be crap and you get nowhere. And so part of the art of living well is knowing in different fields and domains, what are good trade-offs? Like, you know, if it's a, we've already highlighted spouses here, it's not a good trade-off to do things that are going to dis disappoint your spouse over and over. That's one where you want to take the extra time and that extra yeah. effort might be worth it. Other areas, there, there are things that just oftentimes we can get held up on that don't matter in life very much. Like you have to do them, but don't waste extra time making certain things perfect if you've got a lot of constraints. And so you got to learn which things to ignore more and which to really pay close attention to. Yeah. So in numerics, there's three core principles, speed, accuracy, and stability. And if you don't have one of those three, you can't use the method, right? It could be the fastest method in the world, but if it produces the wrong answer, it's not useful. Or well, it can be very about, accurate. Stability for a second, because that one yeah. hasn't come up as much. What, what do you mean by stability? So stability in general, so the basic by the book definition is if I plug in initial conditions, say initial positions in my model or initial velocities, that are similar, like maybe perturbed a little bit, will I get a similar answer or will I get an answer completely different? So something that's considered ill-conditioned or unstable is I maybe perturb the system a little bit. I move one, one bacteria to a different location and now the whole trajectories are all completely different. So if models are well-posed and everything is differential and continuous, a slight change in the intra in initial condition should be a slight change in the output if everything is stable. So now there's, there's a sort of uh, bigger principle in science underlying that. The idea basically is that, at least in the types of models you're running, like biological models, forget like other things like quantum models or who knows what. <laughs> the, the basic idea is if I'm dealing with a bunch of bacteria, say, it's not physically going to happen where if the bacteria are in these positions and then in another situation, they're just slightly different, that all of a sudden some ridiculously different behavior is going to happen. Like it's it just not physically feasible that that's going to make a huge difference. So hence, if my model that I'm using to represent it, if a little shift results in drastically different behavior, then it's probably not an accurate model. Yeah. So but it's either not accurate or you're near some sort of weird transition and you need to figure out right. what's happening. Well, and, that, and that's an interesting, that's actually the point I was about to make, which is there are fields and maybe even in biology, it does happen where Sometimes, though, maybe there is, I mean, that's where uh, dynamical systems and chaos theory and things, there are models, like the logistic equation um, is, is the famous simplest example of this. There are models where things are, 
you, you perturb them a little bit and you get drastically different behavior. So uh, there are, I think, plenty of famous results where someone has gotten some weird outlier, say from a model, and they actually, maybe 99% of the time, it means your model's wrong. But sometimes yeah. it actually means that your model might actually be somewhat accurate and, and looking closer, you're gonna find there is some bifurcation. All of a sudden, there's some drastically different behavior. So for your readers, let me throw out Lorenz attractor is something to look up. It's a deterministic system that results in chaos. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's the perfect example of something that just needed to be more understood. Yeah, and that actually might be a good subject for what our video. Um, yeah. That, that could be a good one for me to um, do. So I'm curious then, if you're running a simulation of, of the bacteria example, because we talked when we talked with Dr. Staholsky, you know, she was doing models, cells, but of the actual movements and, and really detailed small biophysical modeling. Um, yeah. You though, you're modeling organization and things. You're not really so much, I don't think, worried about the exact details of how the flagella are moving and things. You know, are you treating cells as point particles? Are you treating, you know, is this sort of almost like a graph theoretical type of construction or do you actually have dimension to these things and you have, you have biophysical parameters in there too? So you know, we talk about trade-offs, right? Yeah. There are two ways to model bacteria and there are two communities and we communicate, but there are two communities. One, like uh, I'll give you an example, Lisa Fauci who's president of Siam right now. She has the, a, a beautiful model for how the mechanism of the flagella works down to every detail, every fiber, how it rotates, how it propels, it's gorgeous. She creates the fluid flow. I'm the opposite. I'm trying to simulate a million particles. And if I get into that detail, the simulation would take 10 years. So what I do is like you mentioned, I trade off. I model a bacteria as a point particle, but sort of the interesting, the art is we give it a shape through how it interacts with the fluid. So there's a famous Jeffrey equation, which is an ellipsoid rotating in a fluid. So we let it still be an ellipsoid, even though it's modeled as a point by how it interacts with the fluid. And we give it a size through a repulsive potential. So points, we don't want bacteria to overlap, right? They take up space. So you enforce the space they take up by putting a force that propels everyone else away in a certain excluded region. Mm -hmm. So the computations are fast because we're only modeling the location of points, but when they get close, they get more detailed because they're colliding through the repulsive potential or they're aligning through the interaction with the local fluid. So those are the essential things at the macro scale, the alignment and the collisions. The details of how the flagella works is not important at the macro scale for the pattern formation. So, so there's that, that bigger picture idea of it's about what you care about, right? It's yes. not a right or wrong. It's if your question is to understand, like Dr. Staholsky or like the example you just gave, the exact details of how a cell moves, well, then you got to go into all the physical details. Whereas if the, if the concern is to understand how a big scale phenomenon happens, well, you can't afford computationally to include all the details. So you, you change what you do based on what you care about. Exactly. And uh, in terms of rolling it back to math, right, it's easier to analyze how the center of mass is moving as a point, even writing down the differential equations, than it is to put a mesh on the body and try to analyze how all those body points are moving. And it is important to understand the swimming mechanism. But if your goal is the macro scale thing, even mathematically, it's more efficient to model points that we're all comfortable with. So are you doing, are, are your simulations finite difference types of things? You know, what, when you take your differential equation, what does it become when you're doing your, they all, basically the idea for, for listeners is, you correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. just about always the idea is you take a differential equation 
and you turn it into linear algebra, right? That, that's what happens when you do, when you program computers is differential things, differential equations become linear equations. Um, is that what happens in your case or am I off? Yeah, so we'll also mention Kyle is a linear algebra fanatic. That's why he mentions linear algebra. No, so what are the prereqs for the modeling course? This is going back to CSU is linear algebra and differential equations. Those are the two fundamental fields you need for modeling. And basically what you do computationally is what you mentioned. You find a difference, but the art is, do I just need a central difference? You know, which is using my two neighboring points. Do I need something more complicated using five, 10 points because the system is less stable? Mm -hmm. And basically you take a differential equation and this is a, something for modelers to think about. There's two forms. I could take it naturally as a differential equation called the local form because it's modeling points or you can integrate everything and take the non-local form, which is basically all your derivative terms now have an integral and maybe they simplify. But now instead of doing a finite difference scheme, you use finite volume. You break the integral into little pieces and solve it that way. And different applications call for different methods. I tend to use the central difference and finite difference methods more, but I've also done problems with integrals in them where you need to do the finite volume methods to solve. And it just comes down to analysis, right? An, an integral is harder to understand and analyze for me an integral differential equation because you have both derivatives and integrals floating around. A differential equation has more or less standard ways to analyze it. They may not be easy, but at least there are standard techniques to use. And that helps you pick the numerical method. So, so in the integral example, the, the benefit is that it's often stabler. Is that, is that the usefulness? What's the benefit of the added complexity of the integral approach? Yeah, so typically an integral method, because it takes data locally around the center of mass, it tends to be more stable because usually there's not large spikes or shifts in a biological system because the collision mechanism is keeping them apart, right? So the flows don't get too large at those boundary points. So yeah, the, typically the integral method is used to stabilize the algorithm, but it makes it slower, the trade-off. Yep, yep, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do and you, we, you, you talk about like when you have a million particles, you get a system of equations, and then that's where your linear algebra comes in. Once you linearize it, you can make a large matrix. And then we go back to the science of linear algebra, where we go to our pure friends and we say, what's the fastest way to analyze this matrix? You yeah. know, because we need to speed up our computations. So everything works together. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for listeners, you know, you end up with some giant AX equals B type of classic linear algebra equation. Oftentimes, but not always, the matrix A has a, a special form, not always, um, and a huge bit of a bit of pure linear algebra is saying, what are canonical factorizations of that matrix? So oftentimes if it's say Hermitian, you know, it's a unitary times a diagonal times a unitary, or often you'll do like a QR decomposition. And the crossover to numerical linear algebra is to say, which of those factorizations can we do really quickly to solve whatever the, the types of equations we have? Because now we, we don't just want to know the theory, we actually want to do the calculations. And that, that's what numerical linear algebra is all about is, what tricks can we play for different types of matrices and things to actually solve stuff, you know, not using row reduction and, and, and terms. To go back to biology, right? If you think about a biological system and say animals, sheep, whatever working, your neighbors are gonna be most important, right? The people near you. So if you imagine a matrix system relating to this, you can imagine what's called a sparse matrix where there's a lot of zeros because everyone else is so far away from you, they're not really contributing to your motion. So we are really focused on modeling is, 
can we build the sparse system and use a clever method that will speed up the computation, knowing that most of the entries are zero? Actually, this is fun. I might, I, I did this with, with the interview I just had. Um, this is going to lead to me having lots of project <laughs> ideas. But I, I work in random matrix theory. So, so one of the types of problems I'm not in right now, but I'm interested in getting to are, are sparse Bernoulli type matrices and things like that. Um, yeah. might, might be a fun discussion offline for if there are, are interesting problems you have or, or might like to know some theory about um, to actually bring in a little random matrix theory for you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, randomness is important, right? We have stochastic, stochastic differential equations, I think is the, sort of the fastest growing field in mathematical biology because at the cellular level, right, there are random processes that we can't predict exactly what, what things are happening. And, you know, it, it was very popular for financial markets, these stochastic differential equations, how to predict what the stock price is going to be tomorrow or the market. Money, yes. Yeah, money, money drives interest. So there's been a lot of research in finance applications. But now we're finally bringing it back to biology. Like a lot of natural processes are random. And can we analyze those equations with the random process? Because a lot of my models, you know, look at the bacteria, the bundling of the flagella is imperfect. So there is a miss, you know, rotation of the flagella. You can move slightly off course just because your bundling is not perfect. That introduces randomness into the model. Numerically, that's easy to put in. Boom, I just put a little normal distribution in there. Analytically, it's impossible to deal with, you know. So oftentimes we'll have this nice numerical model and we'll say, okay, let's take the expected value of it. So that gets rid of the random term and then analyze the result. So the future theory is how to analyze these stochastic equations to get conclusions about the biological system. Yeah, actually, say, say just a touch more, you know, so you had a normal partial differential equation and the coefficients are fixed and, you know, it's a wave equation or who knows what. So what, what's the difference in the stochastic for our listeners so they can really picture what's, what's changed? Yeah, so for example, just consider a basic ODE of Newton's law. So you have position and velocity, right? So say we're pedestrians in a crosswalk. We're walking across the street and I, I am about to run into Kyle. He's walking right towards me. I have a choice to make. I can either go left or right to go around him. And that's just random. Like whatever I'm feeling that day, I might go left, I might go right. But I have to build that into the model that I'm going to pick a direction and go with roughly 50-50 probability. So like that's not, I can't say, oh, a bacteria is always going to swim to the right. That doesn't make any sense because we know that's not true. But so. Where mathematically does it get put in? Like how, how I can picture F equals MA, where's the uncertainty? Like, like actually trying to get, I don't know, I'm giving you a challenge because you can't write the math. Yeah, like, no. Where is the uncertainty at? How does it put into the- So, equation? well, I mean, the key word here is uh, kinetic theory. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically you can take your system of ODEs that are deterministic and imagine that, let's have a thought experiment for a second. You take a set of random initial positions like I have a distribution of random initial positions. The kinetic equation, the PDE that governs the probability for the system has uh, an equation like a transport equation where the characteristics, if, if people are familiar with the method of characteristics, the characteristics of that PDE are the original ODEs modeling my system, my bacterial trajectories. The P which solves the PDE is the distribution for every possible initial condition. So kinetic theory allows us to go from one realization of deterministic particle trajectories to every realization at once at the PDE level. And we analyze that and we can get conclusions about, you know, is it a set of measure zero where these trajectories intersect? That would give us basically existence because they would never overlap, you know, something like that. So there are three levels. There's the ODE deterministic level. How does my particle move? There's the kinetic level. 
if I take a distribution of particles, like I have a thousand realizations, what is the average behavior on in general? I simulate that with the kinetic equation. And then on top of that, if you integrate out velocity, you get the macroscopic equation, which is like Navier-Stokes, which was mentioned in a previous podcast. You get how, we're not saying how fluid particles individually move in every realization. We're talking about it in the macroscopic, how they move in a fluid when I'm applying a force. That's the macroscopic level. So I work in the first two levels. Yeah, so actually, this is this is teaching me things, which is half the point of these interviews, I suppose. Um, my, my selfish motivation. So when you're saying the kinetic level, what you're doing then is just running it with a whole lot of different particles in different initial conditions, and that's basically how you're making things random. Well, like, that's the simulation part. That's the test, right? Yeah. What's the? I'm, I'm not getting the theory part. How? how the theory part is you can write that system of ODEs. There's a way to write it as a single PD, one single PD for the probability P. And that probability depends on space, velocity, and time. Mm. And that's tracking all the trajectories at once. So basically, you can use PD theory to analyze, and your analyst can analyze the PDE equation, the kinetic equation, and I can run the simulations. And what where we should see is that, on average, they both produce the same value. And that's called the mean field. Ah, oh, see, this is getting into, to you. so we're, we're uncovering weak spots in my understanding. So I think actually this will be the what our video for this, because I want to make sure I understand. So there's a way to, some sort of canonical way to translate our system of ODEs um, into a system of PDEs. Into one single PDE for the probability. To a single PDE. All right, well, yeah. I'm going to uncover exactly how to do this, because I want to make sure I know how to do it. Um, yeah, but... so it's uh, called the BP, BBKG hierarchy. It was named after a few Russian mathematicians. Oh, who developed so I've it. heard of this and never what it is. So we're we're okay. You're connecting some dots. So that's an infinite system of PDEs, but when you truncate it at the first level, you get the mean field equation, which is a single PDE. Oh, see, we're going to talk a bunch more about this. This is good. So what what you're just highlighting there is a a new form of the constant idea of in in math all the time we get infinite sums or infinite series of things. And then when we actually want to do something practically, we can't deal with the infinite sum, so we take the first one. Or if our application really demands it, we might take the first two. So here, apparently, there's a way to take the system ODEs, translate it into an infinite uh, countable infinity of PDEs, and they somehow approximate what you care about. And we're just going to cut and take the top one. That's the mean field approximation. What's it called? Yeah. Is there a name for if you take the first two? So the first, so the mean field is just the expected value right from statistics the zeroth order yeah yes the first order is pairwise interactions mm -hmm. so if you take the first two equations you're only considering self-interaction and pairwise interactions oh you so go, now you're dusting off things i'm remembering a little yeah bit. if you go another level up it's three body interactions and so on and as we know the three body problem is not an easy problem so yes. typically it's truncated at the first or second level okay all right well we're, we're gonna th that will be the the what are um, and I think, um, I think we might have to wrap it there in the interest of time that that's sure. a, good, a good place to pause. Um, Dr. Ryan, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for, um, helping us pure people understand a little more of the applied end. Um, this has been well, great. Thank you for developing the linear algebra I'm using. Maybe a hundred years from now, I'll be using your linear algebra you're doing today. That, that would be wonderful. And man, you're doing pretty well if you're using my stuff a hundred years from now. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note. Um, please uh, check out our other podcasts, other videos. Dr. Ryan, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, take care, everyone. Bye.
Right. That'll do it for today's edition of the Life and Math podcast. We thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, visit lifeandmath.com to find out more about what we're doing. And until next time, be well.